It only took my wife reminding me, Reese reminding me before I came up. You remember Adam was praying? Woo! Uh-oh. Ah, there we go. It is uh, so good to be with you guys this morning. Um, I, I just want to say I, I love being one of your pastors. Um, it is a joy. Uh, last week was a great time to be able to just to celebrate uh, what God has done here. Um, I, I've been absolutely floored by your generosity. And uh, I think that what the Apostle Paul said, it's, it's funny that we're in Philippians uh, because that's really the reason we have the book of Philippians is it's a response to the incredible generosity of the church there at Philippi. And in, in response to that, the Apostle Paul says in the latter part of the book, in chapter number 4 and verse number 14, he says, It was kind of you to share my troubles. And you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And this is the, this is the part I want you to catch. Not that I seek the gift but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And so I I think that as you continue to practice such incredible generosity, we want to become a church that tries to outdo one another in showing honor, as Romans says. And so at some point, God willing, you will be the recipient of that generosity. And so we want to continue to encourage that, not that we're here to seek our own or to seek a gift, but we're seeking the fruit of generosity uh, on your behalf. And so it's been exciting to be able to pray that this week and to thank God for an incredibly generous church. And so um, in that regard, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for the kind welcome that you've given to my family and I. And uh, it has just been a joy uh, to be your pastor for these past couple weeks. So we're going to go ahead and pray. We've got a lot of work to do. In fact, I need to... uh, um, my wife, maybe she can give me some signals. About 30 minutes in, I need to kind of wrap it up. So just, yeah. Uh, so if you can give me that signal, uh, I'll know that I need to, to move a little quicker. Um, but we're going to go ahead and pray. Ask God to bless our time together. Um, such a, a rich passage uh, this morning for us. God, we pray uh, for your grace this morning. God, I thank you for just the incredible generosity of of this body. I thank you for the love that they have for one another. God, I thank you for their desire to maintain unity. And uh, Lord, we just pray your grace this morning that you would help us in that end. That God, you would keep us tenaciously together. That God, as we grow and, and Lord willing, as you add to your church, Lord, may we always be found pure and blameless. That we might always keep the main thing and the main thing here at Emmanuel. And that we might go hard after, after the knowledge of you in every area of our lives. God, this morning as I, I deliver your word, uh, Lord, I just pray that you would uh, get me out of the way. Lord, I know you have something for us this morning. I pray your Holy Spirit would just fill me. Uh, that, Lord, these words would uh, hit their intended target. That, God, we would uh, open our hearts. That we would... Um, that we'd be prepared to receive it, that we might not just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. And God, we thank you for your word this morning, the treasure that it is, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I, I suffer from an ailment that I think maybe some of you might suffer from as well. Um, my wife has uh, done much to try to combat this ailment since uh, we, we got married. And, and the ailment is, it's described a number of ways. Uh, the, the thing that I've heard it described as that really has stuck with me is analysis paralysis. So anybody suffer from that ailment here where you just, you are, you are pretty much um, prone to just compiling more and more and more information. And in compiling more and more information, uh, you can't really ever seem to move with that information. And so you're just stuck in a loop where you continue to consume and consume and consume. So my wife has combated this and there's a phrase that is very popular in the Brown household and uh, it's called done is better than perfect. And uh, it's usually said with some unction and, uh, and it is a, is a loving guide to remind me that the purpose of information is that we would put it into practice and that we would move and not that we would stay stuck and paralyzed by it. I'll never forget uh, the first time I think that I really experienced this uh, that, that I remember is when I went into the new Panera Bread right? A big thing for us here in Clarksburg to get a Panera bread. And I was excited to try it. And I walked in and immediately I was like, uh, no. And I walked out because I didn't know where to start. There was so much information. There's a board over here and a board over there. And there's two people taking orders. And I don't know if I'm on the pastry side or if I'm on the bagel side. I just short circuited my brain. So this week it's been something similar for me. You guys have seen the reports of coronavirus, right? This is, this, is, uh, this is a dream for somebody that loves to compile information because every day I get to work and, and it's kind of my job, so there's some justification for it. I'm pulling up everything I can find about coronavirus and, uh, and I am nervous and I am reading and it's like the best scary movie you could ever watch. I'm not doing anything with that information. Other than worrying, right? Worrying is like a rocking chair, somebody said. It gives you something to do, but it gets you nowhere. Our businesses are prone to struggle with analysis paralysis. In fact, in a recent article in the magazine Entrepreneur, uh, there was an article entitled, um, Keep Moving or Die. Keep Moving or Die. And you know, this morning, I think if we were honest, we would say that we have many of those same struggles In fact, when it comes to our lives, we're faced day in and day out with an abundance of choices. Maybe it's a choice to continue in a marriage. Maybe it's a choice in which to determine whether I'm going to spend more time with this child and less time with this child, right? Sometimes we have to make those decisions and they're hard. I love both of my kids equally. But every now and then, as a good and loving dad, I notice that one needs a little more attention. But it's so hard to leave the one that I love in order to show more love to one that's in need of love. Those are tough decisions. Sometimes as a dad, I wonder, it just doesn't seem like there's enough time in the day for everything that I want to accomplish. And so a lot of times I'm faced with decisions that aren't in and of themselves bad or wrong. They're both good decisions. But at the end of the day, the enemy of the best decision is the good decision. And so I'm, I have analysis paralysis and that I don't know what is good. I don't know what the best decision is. I don't know the best way to invest my time. 
and I'm feeling that tension. And I don't know if you've been that way this week or not, feeling that with maybe your health. And what's the best decision for your diet, right? If you want analysis paralysis, try to read up on the best diet. I mean, you've got the ketogenic diet and you've got the Mediterranean diet. And one day they say you should do this. Someone the other day told me it was bad to eat a pound of bacon a day. I think that's ridiculous. Um, I love bacon. And it, it is just a struggle to know what to do. And we've got these struggles. How much time do I spend in the scriptures? How much time do I spend in prayer? How many days a week should I be in the church? What involvement should I have? Should I be this teacher or that teacher? Should I do this ministry? Should we have a vacation Bible school? Should we not? All great things. But sometimes it gets tough to move because we're overwhelmed with the decisions and the choices that face us. And so in Philippians, you guys are with me in chapter number 1. We're going to look at verse number 9. Philippians chapter number 1, verse number 9. We're coming to this great prayer of the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians. And so the Apostle Paul is a man that has the end in mind. And so in that article in Entrepreneur, the one thing that uh, the author said, if you want to keep moving or die, the first thing you need to know is where you want to go. And we're going to see that this morning in Philippians. The Apostle Paul has a heart for this church. He was there in its inception. He saw how God miraculously brought it together, the people that he brought together to form it. And so he has an end in mind for this church. There's something that he wants to accomplish. And so we're going to see this in verse number 9. It says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. I don't know if you're like me, but I've oftentimes wondered what a prayer of an apostle would sound like. Maybe you, prayer is a difficulty for you. It's a struggle. It, it is for me. Sometimes when I go to pray, I just feel awkward. I don't know what to say. And then sometimes we pray through lists and that that just sometimes seems tedious, to be honest, and cold, manufactured as we pray for this and pray for that. But we have this beautiful example in Philippians of the prayer of an apostle. And not only the prayer of an apostle, but the prayer of an apostle for the church there at Philippi. And I actually got this wrong this week, and so I want to be careful from the start. When I first read it, I thought that the prayer of the apostle would be what? As you read it, what do you think it is? That your love may abound. And so like the beginning of my study, like I got fixated on that, and I thought that's what the apostle Paul was really praying for here in the church of Philippi. This was the end that he had in mind. He wanted the church to grow in its love. And while that is true, that's not the end. You see, actually, the end comes a little bit later on. He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Here it is. So that, this is the end game, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so this is the thrust of the prayer here in Philippians chapter number 1, verse number 9 through 11, is the Apostle Paul has in mind the desire, what he wants to see accomplished there in the work at Philippi. He has the confidence to believe that God is going to finish what he started there. And the end that he has in mind is that they'll be able to approve what is excellent and they'll be able to discern the best choice from the good choice. 
And so this morning, that's what we want to look at, is how do we do this? How do we get to a place in our lives where when we're confronted with all of these choices and we have all of this anxiety and stress and worry and concern about what to do, that we'll have a framework in which to look in Scripture to be able to discern what is the best choice and what is the right choice and what will accomplish the, the end that the Apostle Paul has in mind. So he says first in verse number 9, And this is where we want to spend some time. How do we get there? How do we get to this place where we're able to easily discern what is the best decision? And so I don't know what that decision is in your life, but you've probably got something in mind. It's a struggle. There's a tension there, something that you're weighing and uh, something that you're not sure exactly what to do in, what the will of God would be in that situation. And so in verse number nine, he says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. The first thing I would bring to your attention is that this is a prayer. And that may cause some manner of struggle for some of you because prayers are oftentimes to be a private thing, right? Uh, Jesus warns in Matthew chapter number 6, he says that you ought not to be like the Pharisees who love to pray in front of people, right? They love to use big words and they love to be the center of attention. And so when they pray, Jesus says they have their reward then and there in the attention of the hearers and they are not getting the attention of God. There is no reward to be found in doing these good things like prayer in public that we might be be that it might be added to our boasting or our pride and so we get to philippians we say well it's a curious thing that the apostle paul would share his prayer with the church here at philippi why would he do such a thing I think there's two reasons, and and John Piper does a great job of of pointing these out. The first thing that he wanted to see is kind of a recurring theme in our study of Philippians. He says, it is my prayer, and prayer in and of itself uh, shows us, it displays for us that we have to go outside of ourselves to accomplish that which we ask, right? Prayer says that we have to commend these things to God, that it's not something that we in and of ourselves are capable of producing or manufacturing, And so John Piper says the first thing that the Apostle Paul would want to bring to the attention of this church is that the things that he's about to ask on their behalf are things that can only be accomplished by God. They're not anything that we can accomplish on our own and in our own power. And so we see the things that he's about to ask. He's about to ask that they'll have love that abounds more and more, that they'll have knowledge and discernment, that they'll be able to test or approve what is excellent, that they'll be pure and blameless, for the day of Christ, and that they'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, that they'll be able to glorify and praise God. And all of these things come from who? From God. That God is the source of the grace that we need in order for this work to be accomplished in our lives. And so God is the cause of these things. And we already saw that before, right? Because in the partnership that he lauds, this partnership in the gospel from the first day until now in verse number five, the apostle Paul says he's sure of this, that he, that God who began a good work in you will finish it. And so our confidence here at Emmanuel Baptist Church is not in ourselves to be able to accomplish that which we desire. Our confidence is in God that he can accomplish what it is that we desire. But yet there's another reason that he shares it. Because this works, not only do we recognize that God is the cause, but we ourselves also need to be in tandem pursuing it. I think sometimes that there is a a desire for us to say it's God's work and now I can just kind of sit back and watch it unfold. 
right? God is sovereign. God is going to accomplish whatever it is that he wants to accomplish. And so I can just kind of kick back in my easy chair. I can watch football. I can just you know, take it all in and just trust that God is going to work the things of God. But that's not the pattern that we see in Scripture. That's certainly not the pattern of the Apostle Paul. It's not the pattern of the church at Philippi. So I think that he shares this prayer not only to remind them that God is the cause and that God is the source of the grace that we need to accomplish this thing, but he also shares it so that the church there at Philippi would know what to pursue. And what is it that he wants them to pursue? He wants them to pursue love and he wants them to pursue knowledge and discernment. He wants them to strive with all of their effort to, to prove what is excellent so that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with every fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. There's a lot of things there to do. When we trust in the sovereignty of God and we commend things to God that doesn't give us license to no longer pursue the things that God has called us to pursue. Rather, as the Apostle Paul says later in chapter number 2, it gives us the, the permission to pursue those things with a confidence that God is actually the one supplying the grace. God is actually the one doing the work. Chapter number 2 and verse number 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now obey. Continue obeying, continue pursuing. Not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so I think the Apostle Paul shares this prayer that he prays, first off, because he wants us to know that we too should pray for these things, because these things come from God, that God is the source of what we ask. But secondly, I think that he prays in order to set an example for how we should pray, and then also the things that we should be pursuing as a church. But the next thing that you'll see there is he prays for an abundance of love. He says that your love may abound more and more. We already talked, the Apostle Paul has a, a way about him of kind of amping things up, taking things to the next level. Um, he's a, he's a, a personality that I think would be prone to pursuing what is excellent in anything that he did. Uh, before he was a Christian, he was excellent in the study of Jewish traditions and customs and laws. He was of his own admission, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And so I think there's a spirit of the Apostle Paul that is just kind of a, a type A, go hard, uh, lion personality that uh, desires to do everything in excellence. And so we'll come back to that. But he loves this word abound more and more. In fact, it's used four times just in the book of Philippians, and it's littered throughout all of the Pauline epistles. And uh, it's a curious word. I, I like to think, this, this came to mind, this may be a terrible illustration, but I kind of think he's like the Dana Holgerson of the apostles in a sense, right? Dana Holgerson always had like the Red Bull on the side of the sidelines. And, and like the Apostle Paul, I just think is that kind of guy who is demanding excellence. And he is just a, a very strong personality. And in being a strong personality, we find time and time again this, this desire to amplify things, to take them to the next level. 
And we saw that already in, in both the greeting. Remember, the Apostle Paul employs a traditional Jewish greeting. He says that, uh, he, says that uh, he desired that there would be peace from God. But then he kind of took that to the next level by identifying the source of that grace, which is God, and then marrying Jesus so that Jesus would be seen as being equal with God. And so he just has this tendency to, to amp and to use colorful, hyperbole, hyperbolic language. And we see that again in this phrase, abound more and more. The idea is that he's not just asking for more love. He could have said that. In fact, he's not even asking for more and more love. If you read the, the tradition of the Greek language behind it, what he is actually saying is, I want still more and more love. Like It's like that, was the Dr. Pepper commercial. I want it all. I want all the love. Like It's not enough to have more love. It's not enough to have more and more love. Like I want all of the love. And the idea here is that love would be overflowing, that it would flood us. And that it would be so much so that a thing that is comparable would become incomparable. Now, in our day and age, we have some, some slang that might kind of help us understand this word. We might say that that person's performance was record-breaking, right? What once was comparable. Let's say you were talking about running a 40-yard dash. We have a comparable time. That, that would be like somewhere in the 4-3, 4-4 range if you're at the combine. But let's suppose that somebody ran like a 3-8. That would be record-breaking. That's something that has taken what once was comparable, and it has redefined what is comparable. And so that's what the Apostle Paul here is praying. So when he is going to his prayer closet and he's thinking of the church at Philippi, he is praying that their love may abound more and more, not just more, but still more and more, that it would overflow its banks, that it would consume them, that it would be something that is incomparable, that it would be record-breaking, shattering. And that's a good prayer, right? That's something that we ought to be praying here at Emmanuel Baptist Church, that our love would just continue to increase. But our love for what? This threw me this week. This is tricky, right? Love's usually, love usually has an object with it. There's something that we're to love. And this, is there an object there? Because maybe I missed it. I, maybe you guys have it. And that would really answer a lot of questions for me and would have saved me a lot of time in preparation this week. But I don't see it. He says that your love, like we get that he is intense about it, that he wants it to abound more and more, but there's no object. Our love for what? Is it love for God? Is it love for each other? Tell us, Paul. What do you mean? Love for what? He doesn't say. In fact, there's a reason that he doesn't say. When there's no object, it takes our attention away from the object of our love and puts it where? On the source. So it's intentional. The Apostle Paul didn't want us to get in the weeds in regards to this. He didn't want us to think about what the object of our love was. He wanted us just to think about love, to be abounding in it. It is a, Because if there was an object, and there is an object in other places in Scripture, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So it could have been love for God, although Paul very rarely ever talks about love for God. It could have been like Ephesians and been love for others, love for the church, love for our brothers. Uh, by your love for one another will the world know you. But there's no object. 
And because there's no object, we, we know here that the love that the Apostle Paul is drawing our attention to is the source of this love. Where does it come from? He's not saying that he wants or desires us to love a particular thing, but that our lives, our hearts will be characterized by love. So then it begs the question, what in the world is love? I mean, what is this thing that the Apostle Paul desires that would overflow our banks, that we would abound in, that we would have still more and more in the church? Well, the first thing we need to realize is that love is something that is very difficult to understand because love is not something that is inherent in us. It's not something that comes from us naturally. In fact, uh, Jonathan Edwards said this. He said, heaven is a world of love. And so we think about these, uh, sometimes we introduce things into our, our habitat here in West Virginia that are not natural. Like we just tried to introduce elk into our habitat here. Uh, we did that to coyotes, which is, have posed quite a problem, and other invasive species and some types of wildflowers or things that don't naturally grow here that are brought in and are transplanted into our ecosystem. Love is not something that naturally grows in our hearts. The love that is talked about here is something that has its place in heaven that is supernaturally brought from heaven to us. It's something that is planted, it's alien to our own selves and to our flesh. The love here that is spoken of is God. God is love, right? 1 John 4.16, God is love. And so not only is it something that God is only able to produce. It is something that he is. It is an attribute of God, that God is love. Love is something that is produced in the heart of a yielded believer by the Holy Spirit, Romans tells us. And its chief ingredient, I'm going to take a guess at it, because it's not the love that we see on TV. It's not the love that we thought of when we were 16 and 17 and we were infatuated with our first crush. Its chief ingredient is self-sacrifice. That's love. No greater love has any man than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The source of the love is God, and that God would love, that he would bring love in the form of his Son from heaven to earth to die on the cross for us, to substitute himself for us, to do the greatest act of love the world has ever known to perform the greatest self-sacrifice the world has ever known. I'll never forget being in college, and uh, I was at Bible college 100 years ago, and I'm amazed that I even remembered this as, the, as I was preparing the sermon, but God just he engraved that in my mind at that moment as a young guy, 17, 18 years old in a class, and I don't remember the class now, but I remember the definition of love, that love is choosing to meet the needs of another with a servant spirit, no matter the cost. That's what love is. That's what the Apostle Paul has in mind here. And should it be any surprise to us? Because we've been stating this for weeks in the negative, right? And you thought, I thought, you know, the past couple weeks were a real downer. Well, that's because we were stating it negatively. And we're saying that the thing that threatens our church's vitality, the thing that will cause us to become the thing that we don't want it to become, a life-draining burden, the thing that will threaten our unity, is that if we begin to elevate self, if Jesus decreases and we increase, and if we begin to to laud self and to glorify self 
That's what threatens the church. And we've said it negatively. We've said that we need to share credit and that we need to be a servant. We need to lose our identity and we need to be part of the body. And we've said that grace and peace come outside of us. And we've everything has been geared towards us in these past couple weeks of dying to self. But now we get to say it positively. And it's so much more encouraging because what it is is when you die to self, it frees you to love. And that's what love is. Love is self-sacrifice. And so the Apostle Paul, in praying this prayer, that your love would abound more and more, he is saying that your habit of decreasing self, your habit of sacrificing self, of elevating others, of choosing to meet other people's needs with a servant spirit, no matter the personal cost to you, that's what he's praying would increase. And that we would know that love because we would know it from God who sent His Son Jesus, who is love. And as we become even more enamored and in awe and savor the source of love, that it would spur us to have the same pattern that as Jesus says, like a grain of wheat must die as it hits the ground in order to give life. So we too must die as a church in order to love one another. That's what the prayer is of the Apostle Paul. And what, no doubt, it's a prayer because who can do that? We, we are enamored with the idea of love until we actually have to practice it. And then practicing love comes with what? Much pain. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. So the love that is spoken here is a love that is not able to be produced in and of our own. It's something alien to us. It's something that comes from heaven. It's something that's produced in the heart of a yielded believer who willingly self-sacrifices for the benefit of the one who is loved. But then in 1 Corinthians 13, we see the elements of love. 1 Corinthians chapter number 13, no doubt a chapter that you're familiar with. 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now look at verse number 4. Love is patient. You know what's in, implied in that? That it's painful to love, right? Love is patient. That means that something, there must be a trial, something that has entered into your life that would cause you pain, that you would want to be impatient. It is kind, which means that you must have been provoked in some manner as to want to be unkind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, right? Pain. If you're bearing, you're in pain. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. What a I mean, do you see the mind of the Apostle Paul in this? That he would say, I want, your to, your, I want your love to still abound more and more and more. Like, you can't have enough. I want it to flood your church. Because love is the thing that we need. But it's the thing that in and of ourselves, we are so impotent to create. 
We can't do it. We've got to go to God and ask him to, to show us, to give us the grace in which to love. But it's not just love that he asked would abound more and more, right? He says that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. So not just that love would abound, but knowledge would abound and discernment would abound. This is really important because in our day and age, love is really just always being for something, right? Love is never being against anything. It's always being 100% for it. And so I think that a lot of times in our society, we have, we have a, a misconception of love. In fact, it's not even love at all. It's a childlike, superficial infatuation that masquerades as love. And so it's not love with knowledge. It's just love, blind love. And it's that we would be willing to accept anything that comes our way, that we would affirm anything, that we'd be for anything. There's a reason I think the Apostle Paul he, he wants the love to flood, but then he also kind of sets up some riverbanks, right? Like, I want it to flood, but not that much. I want there to be some boundaries, some guides. And knowledge and discernment are these guides. Because love minus knowledge is not love at all. It's superficial. The church there at Philippi would be in danger if they loved that way. Because as false teachers would come in, ravenous wolves, they would tempt the church to leave the God, to leave the source of love that they love so much, and to pursue other gods, and to pursue other doctrines, like we saw in the church at Galatia with Reese. And so the Apostle Paul was concerned, ever concerned about false teachers. And so he didn't want the church of Philippi just to be blindly accepting of anything that came their way, but he wanted them to abound not just in love, but also in knowledge. He said, what is this knowledge? Well, it doesn't have an object. I mean, darn it, Paul. I mean, time and time again this week, I was just ready to, to pounce on whatever the object was, and there's no object. In fact, not only is there no object, it's an entirely unique word in the Greek. So Paul had a habit of using unique words. And here's another one. And, and the idea here behind it is it would be knowledge of Christ and conformity to him. That that was, it wasn't just general knowledge, it wasn't a liberal arts education. It was specifically majoring in the Bible, knowledge of Christ. Which, when you think about it, what is the Bible but knowledge of Christ and conformity to Him? It's all about Jesus. And so, when the Apostle Paul says our love needs to abound, he says our knowledge must abound. It needs to be reined in. Reined in by what? By Scripture. By knowledge. He said, I don't want you just to blindly accept everything. I want you to love passionately. I want it to overflood its banks. But I want you to do it in subjection to the Word of God, in knowledge of Jesus. And that's so important because there are times where we have to exercise discernment. You say, what is discernment? Well, it could be described, you have an NIV, it's insight. Um, In the Greek, it has kind of the idea of tact. Right? So he wants you to love, but he wants you to love with knowledge, knowledge of Christ, knowledge of the scriptures, under the authority of scripture. But he also wants you to be discerning in your love. You would have tact and insight. Psalm 119 uses this word, and in the Septuagint, it's, it's translated taste. You ever see somebody who, who like is a, a wine taster? I think that's amazing to me. I don't even taste my food. I just swallow it. Like, I mean, that's just kind of a guy thing, right? Like, I don't savor it. I just, you know, Jethro. And, uh, and so 
This idea of taste is kind of like a a connoisseur of wine would swirl it around in their glass. They'd take a sip and they could tell you all the fruity flavors. And, you know, it's it's an idea of discerning the different tastes, the different elements, the mixture. I've seen my boss is amazing this at food. He can taste a recipe and tell you every ingredient in it. It's incredible. But that's what this idea of discernment has, that we would be able to weigh and test and that we'd be able to see the differences in things, that they would become apparent to us. Because there are times where we have to be discerning in our love. In John chapter number 2 and verse number 24, one of the most intriguing passages in the book of John, it says Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew what was in the heart of man. I'm already... That's terrible. All right. How do you do it, Reese? Like, I mean, 30 minutes and gee whiz, the time flies. All right, let's go quick. Hyperspeed. Let's get to the end. Ah, what to do, what to do. Um, so, discernment, tact, insight, being able to distinguish what is different. And so we have to have those elements. Love has to be, it has to be controlled by those things. But why? And here we'll get to the practical application. We'll be done. So five minutes, hang with me. If you haven't heard anything else, this is it. All right? 3 a.m. test. Here it is. The reason that the Apostle Paul wants your love to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment is you may be able to be able to approve what is excellent to test things, to know the right decision, to discern between the difference between what is best and what is good. But why? Why? Why do I need to make good decisions? Why do I need to know how best to use my time? Why do I need to have love and knowledge and discernment so that we can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ? I don't know if I have, I mean, the Apostle Paul, the end game in mind was what? That, that there is going to be a day that is coming when Jesus is going to rule and reign and judge the world. He's coming again. And on that day, that's what the Apostle Paul has as his end game, is that that day is coming and he is living life in the shadow of that day. And all he can think about for this church at Philippi is I got to get them ready. They've got to be pure and blameless so when they stand before Christ, they will be found mature mature in him and that the love that they have will reflect the love of God and so the object and the source will meet and and it'll be glory right and it'll be heaven and heaven will be filled with love what a day that will be and so the prayer of the apostle Paul is a prayer that is so foreign to the church and I don't know how many pastors are out there who are praying this prayer but man we ought to be that his heart for the church at Philippi was I got to get them ready so that when they are on that day of Christ they'll be before him and be pure and blameless. And the idea here in the Greek behind pure and blameless is that there would neither be offense found to them neither would they offend. And what a prayer for a church. That you would not have an offense, that you would be pure, and that you also would not offend with sin. What a beautiful thing. And how do we get there? We get there by growing, abounding in our love and our knowledge and our discernment. And here's the 3 a.m. test. This is what I want you to get. How much time, energy, preparation are you putting into the day of Christ? 
Some of you have gone to Disney, and I envy you because I can't. I want to go to Disney so bad, and it is amazing to me. If you ever do go, uh, Steve Police is your guy. Like he's not here today. Steve Police knows everything there is to know about Disney. I mean, and it's amazing the amount of planning that goes into having a vacation at Disney. Um, some of you have been there, and you know what that's like. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not picking on planning for Disney because when my wife and I and our family take a trip there, Steve Police is going to be the guy I call because I want to know the ins and the outs. But some of us, all of us, right, have probably spent more time preparing our next vacation than we have preparing for the day of Christ. And I look at this and I'm like, here's my prayer list. Here's the Apostle Paul's. And mine doesn't look anything like that. And I'm praying for Susie, and I'm praying for this, and I'm going down the list. There's nothing wrong with that. Certainly there were things and people and objects in the church at Philippi that were worthy of intercession and petition. But they were good things, but they weren't the best thing. They were not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is that we'd be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And here's the last thing I want to share with you filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. I read this week as I was preparing for my message, Scott Sauls is a pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, he had quoted this article where, I can't remember where it was found, but the guy had distinguished between two types of virtue. He said there are some virtues that we would consider resume virtues, right? If you were going to apply for a job, you would, you would want all of these things listed on your resume, particular skills, virtues. But he said that what what has been found to be true is that the resume virtues are not what make a good leader. It's actually what we call eulogy virtues, be character virtues. And so in the Apostle Paul, when we think about our church here abounding in love, and not just love, but knowledge and discernment, We think about being able to discern and approve what is excellent. Think about what our church would look like. We'd be pure and blameless. We'd be ready for the day of Christ. But then we'd also be filled with the fruits of righteousness. These eulogy verses. You say, what in the world is the fruits of righteousness? I think think Reese has already probably spent a lot of time there, right? Galatians 5, verse number 22, the fruits of the Spirit. Let's look at them real quick. Galatians 5. Galatians 5, verse number 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, these fruits of righteousness. Now, there's been some debate, and I don't want to get, you can study this out on your own. There's been some debate that this fruit of righteousness is the righteousness that's imputed to us from Christ. So it's like the righteousness, what Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. Um, It it doesn't, I mean, that's fine. That's not a terrible view to have. Uh, We're not going to spend a lot of time debating it. Uh, What I think of more is like the fruits of the Spirit that come from a heart that sacrifices itself in the interest of others, that loves and abounds in knowledge and discernment. Um, I think that this is the idea behind the, the fruits of righteousness. They'd be these eulogy virtues, these character traits, the things that we desire to be in us, the things that we would want to be found having in the day of Jesus, right? Chapter number 5, verse number 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is, here's the first one, makes sense, love. And then what else do we have under it? Joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, what is there? No bounds. No bounds. Have as much as you want. Have more, have more and more. Have still more and more. Flood with them. Because when Jesus comes back and we stand before him, if you want to be pure and blameless, ready for his coming, you need to be found with these things. Found with love and the fruits of the Spirit. The thing I want to close with is is this. Some of us, myself, I'm, I'm talking to me here, but God has worked in my life this week in this passage. Some of us already have a personality that is prone towards what is excellent, right? Like I, I just, that's that drive that I want things to be excellent. But here's the warning. We've got to be careful because what's the fruit? What is the end game? You're pursuing excellence, your drive, your ambition, you're wanting to be the best. Good things. Apostle Paul had the same drive, right? He said, I count everything in my life but dung so I can know the excellencies of Jesus. I mean, crazy drive. I press towards the mark of the prize for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. But if the fruit is not the fruit of the Spirit, your drive for excellence is not of God, it's of the flesh. And so my reminder this week was that in my being prone to pursuing what is excellent, I need to use this framework. Is it bringing about pure and blamelessness for the day of Christ? Is it bringing about the fruit of righteousness? And am I pursuing in excellence love and knowledge and discernment? Or am I pursuing excellence that I might be puffed up, that I might become proud, that it might bring glory and honor to me in my endeavors, that I may be excellent. And that's a, that's a question that we as a church have to ask. We want to do everything in excellence. But are we doing it with the end in mind? And if so, is the end Jesus and his glory? Or is it our glory? So I'm going to ask us to go ahead and uh, bow our heads. We're going to transition to communion and... Uh, this is such a sweet time in the life of a church. I got to tell you, it's, it's the thing that I looked forward to the most coming back um, was being able to share in this time together. Um, communion, when we commune together, we have koinonia, we have fellowship together.